Thanks for tuning in to the Beer Mighty Things podcast, your place for education and happenings for all things craft beverage. I'm your host, Kyle Reiner. I hope you obtained some value from our show because, as you know, far better it is to Beer Mighty Things. Cheers. Welcome in to today's episode of the Beer Mighty Things podcast. Bill Kovaleski, co-founder and brewmaster of Victory Brewing in Downingtown, Pennsylvania, is here. Bill, welcome. Happy to be here, Kyle. You're looking Thank you. well. Thank you. You are as well. Like I said, um, you know, before we started recording, I mentioned how out of whack my hair is. So I threw on my craft beverage insurance hat, and uh, that's, that's what's keeping me uh, look like normal for now. Good luck. Yep. Uh, today, we're going to walk through some Victory Brewing history. We're going to tackle the topic of adversity and, and what it means and, and how to overcome it. Does that sound fair, Bill? I think I uh, am somewhat of an expert on those topics, so uh, let's do it. Very good. Well, let me start off also by thanking you for all you've done for the beverage industry, the Brewers Guild of Pennsylvania, uh, the Pennsylvania Restaurant and Lodging Association. I mean, you're on boards galore, uh, and you're truly a steward for change and progress in our industry. So thank you for that. It's truly commendable. You know, those are things you don't have to do, but you choose to do. So thanks. Well, you're welcome. I find interest in everything I volunteer for. And, uh, you know, the community made victory a success. So uh, being engaged in the community is um, just natural. Yeah, you're absolutely leading that charge. Um, I do have a question here for you, Bill. Um, I know you're not 35, but you still somehow look 35. (laughs) Is that like, you know, Babe Ruth, they say how you did it, and he said beer and hot dogs. Is that kind of how you're doing it? It's exactly that, Kyle, right? I mean, you know, <clears throat> I think that beer must be the fountain of youth, and so I just don't want to be too far removed from the fountain. <laughs> I think you're, you're helping create that and stock that fountain. Well, now, the other theory there is that your consumption of beer has caused your uh, perception of reality to be altered. Maybe I don't look like I'm 35 at all. Hmm. Maybe we might need a, a listener contest on this one. What if I what if I up my carrot intake? Will that improve my eyesight? Perhaps. <laughs> I believe it will. <laughs> nice. All right. So speaking of Babe Ruth, beer, hot dogs. He has a fantastic quote, and I think it really leads into what we're going to discuss today. And I don't know if you're familiar with it. You probably are, but he says, "Don't let the fear of striking out keep you from playing the game." That's a great quote. Um, I believe I have heard that before. And, um, I believe in it fully. Yeah. Uh, there's no re- reward without risk, right? Absolutely. So, and we both have, uh, spoken a little bit about Teddy Roosevelt. Um, this is a quote that you have printed along the wall in your Downingtown brewery. Um, and it is far better. It is to dear mighty things to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to take rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much because they live in this gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. Uh, what does that mean to you? Why is it on your wall? Um, what it means to me is um, it's inspirational, of course. Uh, it came at a time when Roosevelt was facing, the country was facing great crisis. And um, he utilized it as a motivation to charge forward. Um, similarly, Ron and I discovered it at a time of adversity in our own business, and therefore it kind of became a rallying cry. 
which is why it was featured um, actually twice painted in our Downingtown taproom walls. First time over the bar and uh, the second time in our beer hall dining room. Um, yep. The funny thing about painting it in the over the bar in Downingtown, I did it with stencils. I painted it myself and I stepped back away from it after done, feeling pretty fulfilled for getting this done. And then I sat down at my bar, which of course didn't have beer yet because this was pre-opening. And I'm like, you idiot. This is a motivational quote. When someone sits down at your bar, you want them to be motivated to do nothing but sit at that bar for the next few hours. Yeah. So, you know, you don't want them to read a Teddy Roosevelt quote and decide they have to go tackle their crabgrass or anything. You want them to <laughs> relax and enjoy a few beers. They sit down at <laughs> your bar, they order, a, you know, a Braumeister, and then they read the quote and they're like, shit, I got to yeah. go. Oh, yep. gotta go. <laughs> Marketing genius, not. But um, yeah, no, as I said, that uh, that quote sort of appeared to us at a, a time of adversity in our in the formation of our business. And therefore, it uh, it resonated with us. Um, the sort of exact circumstances were that uh, we had written our business plan. We had completed our business plan. In January of 1994, we were busy busy trying to solicit uh, shareholders, um, sell shares in our company to friends and family, aunts and uncles. Um, meanwhile, you know, we were working for our employers. He at uh, Old Dominion Brewing Company, myself at Baltimore Brewing Company, and the work hours and demands were pretty strong, pretty intense for those growing breweries. So, our project. Our vision was sort of faltering. Uh, we weren't finding all the capital that we were looking for, or at least it was slower to come our way. We were having difficulty finding a suitable location, though we had done some market research. And we had this name on our business plan. Um, we had hoped to be Independence Brewing Company. And we uh, learned that there was an Independence Brewing Company. The really sort of dagger in the heart was a uh, very politely worded cease and desist letter in the summer of uh, 1994. And um, <clears throat> so for the two of us, you know, we had known each other for 21 years at that point. I'm sorry, 31 years, 21 years at that point. Um, <clears throat> it was, you know, a really dark moment, right? Um, a lot of the things we had hoped to accomplish weren't coming to light. And uh, that quote was a rallying cry for us uh, because I guess we realized at that point in our lives that, um, you know, there'll be plenty of adversity. There'll be plenty of reasons to have regrets. So giving up, I mean, why create your first regret? Just charge forward. Yeah. Do you, I find that, you know, a lot of times people want to start a business and, or take action and they don't just because of maybe like a little nuance, like, oh, I can't think of a name. Um, I can't think of a title for my book. So I'm uh, just not going to do it. Yeah, I mean, I guess to a certain extent, we create our own obstacles. Or I, let's just look at it differently. The obstacles may exist. How large we allow them to become is up to us. Yeah, it all a lot of times is in our own head. Um, as far as, you know, maybe it's not as big as we think it is, or we need to take a look at it from a different angle to, you know, move around it or, or improve. You know, sometimes we got to improve ourselves to kind of get past that. Yeah. In those same times, um, I have a successful, I have a cousin who was very successful in business. He's only about 
eight or nine years older than me. And, you know, David was one of those guys where like, oh, gosh, we got to get him in as an investor. He, he's perfect for this. Um, we were unable to do so. Uh, and what we got back from him was a business plan covered in red ink with lots of really well thought out questions. And, you know, he cited a lot of deficiencies to our plan and had some real concerns about it. And that was helpful because we, you know, did correct some things, did take some actions, listen to him. It was disappointing that we couldn't get him involved. But, you know, that was a learning lesson for me as well in that um, don't let your skeptics stop you. Listen to what they have to say uh, rationally. Uh, learn from what they have to say. But if they don't have your vision, then really maybe it is a vision. Maybe you are seeing something that you have to actualize that other people can't see. Because sort of the kicker to this story is what he included in the envelope was an opportunity to invest in. <laughs> this needs a drum roll. You're going to love this. Um, I, can, I can add that. <laughs> Uh, to in, invest in blockbuster video, huh. which at the time would have been a great investment. Look at where we sit today. Hmm. Interesting. So, and and it's important. Did he ever become an investor in Victory? I'm not sure. Uh, he did not. No. Okay. We're on great terms. We talk pretty frequently. He uh, he's very pleased with what Ron and I and the entire families have been able to create. Yeah. So the story all ends well. Well, it was great. So it was almost like a door kind of closed, but one open, you know, where he, he gave you a clear revision. Good analogy. Yeah. And from all this, you know, at what point do you come up with the, the name Victory Brewing? Um, well, it's funny because at that time there was an old Dominion beer called Victory Amber Lager. And that was, you know, again, an obstacle slightly, but uh, Ron was on great terms with his boss there jerry bailey and we explained to him what we were hoping to do and he's like okay if it's not a beer name like mine if it's a brewery name we can do something with that so um, that's another lesson as well though you know um don't just do things in a bullheaded manner reach out to people and see where you can find consensus and agreement yeah i've learned you know don't reinvent the wheel there's probably been somebody there who has done it before you and a lot of times they're very willing to help you out and offer suggestions and advice. Yeah, perfect. You got that right. Awesome. So how does the Mighty Things beer then come about? Is that part of, you know, the original portfolio or is that later? No, it's not part of the original portfolio. I think we rolled it out as a product in 2017 for the first time. Oh, wow. It was an Imperial IPA, um, I believe. Yes. Okay. Yep. Um, and it was simply that within our marketing team and our brand development team, um, the Teddy Roosevelt quote and aspects of it had always resonated with them. And somebody was like, there's a beer in this name. And uh, sure enough, there was a beer in that name. Very nice. And, you know, that quote, just going back to that quote, hate the harp on it. Uh, it's obviously the topic here, but it ends with, you know, those folks who live in a great twilight that neither know victory nor defeat. So the fact that the word victory is in there, is that on purpose? Is that subconscious? Yeah. You know, no, no, that's, that, that really is sort of the driver for the name victory. Um, you know, it just, because it's, it ends on that high note. It's an either or victory or defeat who chooses defeat. No, not many or, <laughs> or many, many retaliate, right? You got to sure. lean in. Yep. Um, 
So I don't know how many folks know, you know, kind of the start of your brewery, but, you know, I think uh, you and Ron had met in 1973, fifth grade, you're on the bus. And then, you know, two years later at age 12, you guys start the brewery. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, that would be impressive, right? But you guys go way back. Yep. We absolutely do. Yeah, we do. Um, you know, great family relations. Ron's got older sisters. I have older sisters. So on some level, we were probably the brothers that, none, you know, neither one had. Um, and um, what was interesting that we met on the school bus is our homes were separated by um, what is now Evansburg State Park. And part of that was also a, uh, an abandoned summer camp. So at that abandoned summer camp, there were basketball courts, uh, street hockey courts, a pond for ice hockey. I mean, you know, those, those were the woods where we all got together and, uh, yeah. and, uh, enjoyed life. You had your own, uh, vacant lot there. Yep. So that was 1973. Um, college took us in different directions. Uh, his family had moved in our senior year of high school out to Southern California and therefore he chose to go to UCLA um, I got a scholarship to Temple University and the Tyler School of Art is, you know, renowned. And so that was a, a perfect segue for me. Love it. And, and in 95, I'm sorry, 85, um, post-graduation, we were sort of reunited. Uh, Ron's family was back on the East Coast in Virginia and uh, he moved back this way. And I had given him a homebrew kit in that Christmas as a gift. And that sort of started up the whole fascination with beer. Love it. So you had started brewing beforehand, obviously. Yes. Um, so my dad, uh, very interesting guy, grew up in the coal regions of Pennsylvania, born in 1932. So really saw the worst of the, the depression. And um, so, you know, was a very, very resourceful guy. Um, gardener, canner, pickler, sauerkraut maker. So beer was like, you know, once Jimmy Carter's administration gave it the green light, he's like, hey, we're doing this. And um, I was always his apprentice. Uh, like I said, he was industrious. He was always building things in the home. And um, so he and I just worked as a team. And therefore, I got the assignment of washing bottles and doing a lot of the prep work and, you know, sort of vicariously brewing. Um and then in 1985, while I was seeking a job as a graphic designer, um, I had a little bit of idle time on my hands, and I adopted the kit and started making beer and um, gave one to Ron, as I said, and we really enjoyed the whole thing. Very cool. Uh, you had gone away, is it the Domans or Damons Academy? Uh, yeah, Domans Institute is in um, Munich. I yeah. went there in 1993. Um, I, my first employment in beer started in the summer of 1990. I took over Ron's job at the Baltimore Brewing Company as he was leaving to go to the Technical University of Munich at Weinstephan. Mm -hmm. So um, he got the, the career part of it started before myself. And um, then he went on to Weinstephan, as I said. And then in my employment agreement with Theo de Grun, the owner of um, Baltimore Brewing Company, who, by the way, is the grandson of the gentleman who created the Grolsch breweries in Holland. Yep. So Teo came from this really rich uh, experience in brewing. He has the five-year uh, degree from Weinstephan. So at any rate, uh, after proving myself working for him for a couple of years in lieu of addition, a raise 
um, he sent me to Domans for the training there. Love it. Over some strong beers eventually, some strong Belgian beers, you guys uh, sat down with the wives. I think it was New Year's Eve. How'd that go down? He said, <laughs> hey, we're going to start a brewery. Uh, that's pretty much exactly how it went down, Kyle. Um, was that a plan? They said, hey, we're well, going to get the wives, you know, give them a couple beers, and then we're going to pop the question? I think so. I mean, it wasn't nefarious by any means. You know, Ron and I, they, they weren't surprised that we wanted to talk to them about starting a business. And, you know, at that point, um, each of us had been working in the brewery, in the industry for a couple of years, four for me, five for Ron. And so we opened up some Chimay's and uh, we said to them, hey, you know, maybe this is the year we write a business plan. And um, they were quick to agree. I recall that they gave us three months to be completed and we were completed in one and a half, I think. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, that's how it happened. And going back, you know, here we have adversity, right? You, you got the business plan, you start, you know, rolling out. Um, you get the, the go ahead from the wives, you start raising some funds and now, you know, there's pressure, right? When you, you know, you, you have money coming in, you have people who believe in you. Now you have to, you know, continuously, you know, you're waking up with that. You're going to bed at night saying, all right, we got to make this happen. Cause we have to, you know, we have to stay true to our word. We have to make this work. When I look up the word adversity, uh, it comes from the Latin word advertir, which means to turn toward. Um, so often a lot of people will get adversity and they run away, which is actually the opposite of the definition. So, you know, with this pressure of shareholders and holders and family, you have to pursue, you start to produce beer and then you're, you're finding out the complexity of contracts with distributors and, and the franchise laws. What's, what's that like? Boy, you really set that up beautifully. Um, I like the definition of adversity where it comes from. I was unaware of that, but I guess it sort of gets back to the whole thing of, you know, fight or flight. Mm -hmm. Which do you use? Um, the amygdala. So, you know, you make a great point when you have friends and family money, uh, funding your company, um, you've made a real commitment there, uh, to deliver success to people and do your very best. So I think that that is sort of the baseline consideration for entrepreneurs is that, you know, what is your level of commitment? And if your level of commitment is strong, as strong as it needs to be, you won't turn from adversity. You do your best to resolve the adversity and look at it as an obstacle and not, not a, a wall that you can't overcome. Um, yeah, we found some really interesting things as soon as we were, you know, working through our business. Um, we found that essentially the beer wholesale situation didn't respect or understand what we were trying to produce in order to literally value it to the point we needed it to be. And so we couldn't make enough just putting a case of beer out there through distribution um, to make the business plan work financially. To be profitable, right? There's not as much margin, you know, when you're packaging products. That is correct. So there were two pivots there that we did. Uh, number one was we recognized in Pennsylvania liquor laws that it is permissible for a brewery to do its own distribution. And uh, we decided that we were small enough and unknown enough that we could tackle that. Um, we also recognized in that too, that, you know, we have incredible relationships with wholesalers that we've built up over the years. Um, they're incredible partners to get the job done. Um, but at the time, our message was so new and so unique 
that if the beer product wasn't properly valued by them, how would the message be communicated? How would that get to the audience? We realized we didn't have the luxury of screwing up once. We had to get the message right. We had to make the connection of the brand to the consumers, to the buyers on our own terms. We had to use our own voice to describe the virtues of this product. Going through an intermediary could have been disaster. It was too big of a risk for us. So that really sort of created the pivot to looking at the tap room as our way to communicate to the public. Um, people who work in service are very accustomed to taking, you know, the creation of the chef and expressing it um, accurately with passion to the customer. And, you know, that's what the special of the day is, so to speak. So we needed that type of passion, creativity and intelligence working on our behalf right there at the front lines in order to generate an audience for our beers. And um, so it, it worked. Very unique. And, you know, I have, I'm waiting for your book to come out. When's that coming out? <laughs> um, I, I got Sam and Ken behind me. And so, <laughs> but, you know, in, in, in Ken's book from uh, Ken Grossman of Sierra Nevada, he mentions the fact, you know, of 1983. I mean, he's still in a few contracts with distributors that he can't get out of still, you know? Um, wow. Yeah. It's, just, it's interesting. They're both, they're both great books. And it is funny, you know, again, because everybody who's going to enjoy this is listening and they don't get the visuals. But uh, I thought it was uh, a nice challenge you set up there, Kyle, by putting those two books in your background. <laughs> you have more adversity. <laughs> Opportunity. Exactly. So hey, let's, let's talk about that for a second. Um, I kind of distill the world down to, we, we, we've been using the term adversity a lot. I kind of distill the world down to two buckets. Um, every situation either belongs in the bucket of obligation or opportunity. So again, let's go back to what we we're talking about before. You know, I had shareholders who were friends and family. They had expectations what the company was going to be able to do and to be able to generate. Um, that looks like it's an obligation, right? Yeah. An obligation to deliver to them. But what it really was was an opportunity fueled by their capital for us to create success for a larger group, not only ourselves. Well, and to bring out the best in you, you know, you and Ron personally. Right. Right. So sometimes I think that, you know, mindset is a very important thing here. If you look at it simply as an obligation, you may not be as committed. You may not be as driven. If you take that thing that can be considered an obligation and you reorient yourself to see it as the true opportunity it is, you're going to be a lot more driven. You're going to be a lot more interested in winning that. And I think, you know, when we kind of talk about, say, like the law of attraction, right, a positive mindset attracts others. People want to be around that. Um, I've learned over the last few years about gratitude, right? You start to learn about what you have instead of what you don't have. Um, and that controls your mindset greatly. So, you know, here it's like, all right, I have folks money. I have the opportunity to be incredible, to create great beer, something that I'm passionate about. What a great life. What a great thing that we can build here versus, you know, maybe following somebody else's dream or, or just not ever pursuing what you want. I mean, that is, it's incredible. You got to do that and you get to, you know, be in a position that you're in today because you, you dared mighty things. Yeah, no, you phrased that really well. Um, you're right. Gratitude is sort of the, the, the foundation for perspective, and perspective is so important 
to uh, keep you focused and achieve goals. Do you think that, you know, a gratitude type of situation, you know, if you're not taught that, I mean, it's got to kind of find you, you know, it's not something that you can kind of, uh, you know, Google, what is my purpose? You know, you got to almost find it. And, and I think to me, to me, I found it. Um, it kind of popped in. It was like late 2016. I decided, you know what, you know, I was kind of, so we could go back to a little bit of my adversity mm-hmm. that people want to hear my opportunities, please. You know, I grew up in the Lehigh Valley, so I'm a Bethlehem guy and above us was the coal country, essentially. Um, I do come from a family who was doing all sorts of, you know, like you said, your dad was uh, very industrial, right? And then very good at multiple things. Um, you know, I grew up, my dad was a woodworker. He was a machinist. My mom worked two jobs in the restaurant business. And that's kind of how I, I worked in restaurants my whole life. And then I ended up working at Iron Hill Brewery when I went to Westchester University. And I kind of yeah. paired those two together as well as my love for being around people um, and, and providing a service and, and just doing these sorts of things, um, interacting. And I kind of coupled all that and came to, to the insurance front. But there to do that, right, I had to quit a job. You know, I, I spent seven years in the financial services industry. I, I went to Westchester University. I graduated on a Saturday. And on Monday, I went to work just because right. that's what you're supposed to do. Yep. Right? Go to college get a job, make sure it has benefits and save your money. But there's like no, nothing there was defined. It's not, Hey, save 5% of your paycheck, save 10. You know, there's no, no defined item in there. Um, at least from, from where my background. So you kind of had to figure it out seven years into being in the financial services business. I didn't really like sitting behind a desk, you know, driving to an office that was an hour and a half away to again, sit at a desk and not, get out, right? I want to get out and meet with people. You know, now we're doing mm-hmm. virtual coffee meetings and virtual beer because we have to. Yeah. But um, I decided, you know, I'm, I'm, I have a newborn at home. Therefore, my wife is a teacher. And with the newborn, she's also home. And her school then closes, um, actually in Kennett. They, she's a Catholic school teacher. Uh, school doesn't have enough students because of the 0809 collapse. And, and a lot of kids ended up going then to uh, public school. Got it. So her school closes. I'm like, I hate my job. I'm making very good money and I'm not happy. So a lot of folks, right? You're out there, you're chasing money. Money doesn't do anything. It's not, it's not what it's about. If you do something that you love that the money will come and pay for your bills. And then eventually you'll learn that you're supposed to give it away anyway, because then, then you feel better overall. So you know, that's what I've come to learn. I've come to understand, you know, my wife is very, uh, she comes from a very Catholic family and they give and they give and they give. And I never came from that. You know, I never had a lot. So I always kind of came to the fact of if I got it, I wanted to hold on to it, you know, I got you. Yep. and I never knew that give it away. It'll feel better. You know, the actually kind of digress a little bit. The song by the red hot chili peppers, give it away, give it away, yeah. give it away now. Yeah. That song, Anthony Kiedis dated Sinead O'Connor, and okay. she gave him her favorite sweater of all time. She gave it to him, and she taught him that the way was to give. He's like, this is your absolute favorite sweater. What are you doing? She's like, it will make me feel better to give this to you. Mm-hmm. So there's just those little life lessons where if you follow your passion and 
you give and you help others get what they need, you will be in a greater place and you will understand what you truly have instead of always hunting after the things you don't have. Does that make sense? It makes a ton of sense. That's why you sort of like, uh, you know, I just sat there silently in awe listening to uh, the way you laid it out because it makes complete sense, Kyle. And I, my observation would be, I think you were the first one in this conversation so far to use the word service when you talked about your transition from the hospitality industry um, that you knew so well through youth um, into the job, you know, the real world job, let's call it. Um, and a service mindset is extremely important. You have to recognize that what you are doing um, is benefiting someone else. That's pretty easy to see in the hospitality industry. Uh, it's a little bit more difficult in the brewing industry. Um, although I do believe that's one of the uh, one of the key factors of our success, our group success with our employees was that we tried to keep the brewery and the restaurant visible to one another. So if you're in a production position, regardless of what's going on in your life, positive or negative, you can look through that window and you can see someone who's deriving pleasure from the thing that you're crafting. And I always thought that that was important perspective to, uh, to make available to people. I agree. And ultimately, I mean, you probably only have that wall or window there because you're supposed to. <laughs> right, yeah, insurance guys kind of have to. <laughs> yeah, I'd go with the attorneys on that one. OSHA. Yeah, no, you're right about that. And the other thing, the other thing I'll give you credit for too is um, you aren't providing a service to us in craft brewing, right? I mean, you know, you're taking care of aspects of our business that uh, we don't necessarily want to be spending a lot of time on. It's not nearly as interesting and sexy as discovering new hops and playing around with them in the brew house. No, it's it's not. Well. I quit my job. I go and I, I work at an insurance agency for two years. I start from scratch again, uh, newborn at home, two cars, house, one income, which was just, I had a guarantee of $24,000. This was seven, eight years ago. So I gave yeah. up a job for a guarantee of two grand a month, which was just to cover my mortgage and the rest kind of had to figure out. But from that, I knew that, all right, I have people depending on me, just like you had shareholders. Like I had that pressure. I had to perform. Yeah. And we talk about, Hey, how do we hire somebody? How do we, how do we continue to grow? It's like, go find somebody who has one income, two kids and a mortgage. <laughs> they have to make it work. You know, I know we laugh at it. It's so practical and pragmatic, but it is absolutely true. Um, if I did write the book that's missing from your shelf, uh, I would definitely have a chapter um, called the hot breath of the wolves. Because one of my mantras is that nothing makes you run faster than the hot breath of the wolves on your heels. Like if you're, if you're going to fail and you've got a family that is depending on you and you've got uh, employees that are depending on you, you just, you just kick up the speed and you run faster. There's no other option. It's either that or get gobbled up. Yeah. That part doesn't sound like too much fun. No. But yeah, again, back to the point of like, hey, insurance is not fun. Like, what do you do? I'm in insurance for breweries. <laughs> and they're like, oh, that's a thing. I'm like, well, it is now. Um, so you adapt, you figure it out, right? Banging my head against the wall for two years, doing a home and auto, learning a little bit about business, found a niche, something I'm passionate about and went for it. Um, so out of this, what, at what point, real quick, I mean, were you part of the original Brewers of Pennsylvania Guild? Did you start that? 
Um, yes. I was involved in actually two of them, Artie Tafoya, Carol yep. Stout, myself, um, gosh, whoever I overlook, I'm going to regret, I guess, Mark Edelson of Iron Hill. Um, we were involved in the Pennsylvania Microbrewers Guild, which came together 1999-ish. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, as a volunteer organization, we had tremendous uh, ambitions um, to protect our industry, to learn from one another, to grow together. Um, but we were all entrepreneurs struggling to get enough product out the door. And so um, the volunteer organization didn't really work out all that well. The Brewers of Pennsylvania came about in 2009. I got a call from Dave Casanelli with Yingling of the Yingling Brewery, who's become a great friend of mine. Um, we had never spoken before. He just said, hey, have you seen this uh, proposal in the house? And um, tell me if, if it makes sense to you. And it was um, a PLCB Modernization Act that would have taken away self-distribution rights from brewers. Um, that wasn't important to us at Victory Brewing Company at this point. We had moved right. beyond that model. But self-distribution had been important to us. And I knew a whole lot of people in the state that it was important to and so I had one of those like, holy crap moments. It was like, this is not good. And we need to educate our legislators that this is a bad idea. And so a group of us came together and did just that. And legislators were thankful. They're like, we hadn't heard that side of the story. So we get it. Um, so that measure didn't go too far. But at any rate, that left about 12 of us in a room in December of 2010, I guess it was. And then we decided that we would... Uh, band together to create this um, this new organization. And it's really kind of a, uh, for me, a very silver lining story because Yingling was like the last man standing in yeah. a prior trade association. Um, most of their old guard uh, members had closed. And so they had the vision of saying, well, yeah, let's join forces with these new guys because there mm -hmm. seems to be some momentum here. Interesting. And to hit on those numbers, 1983, there was, what, about 80 breweries in the country? Is that correct? Uh, yes. And then, you know, you're in the guild. You said, well, we have about 12 in the guild or, you know, less than so, 20 breweries probably in Pennsylvania at that time in 2010 or no? No, there were more than 20, but we were, we were well below 100. Yeah, I put us at like 50. You know, now, now we're exploding. So, I mean, that's, and I would say that, the quality of the breweries in Pennsylvania is a testament to the strength of the guild and the leadership. That's a great point. Yeah. I would say that, um, you know, the, the, the doggedness, um, the integrity of some of the founding folks, um, is still there. I mean, you know, Mr. Yingling goes to his brewery most days. I understand his daughters are involved in the future of the brewery. Um, yeah. You know, Carol Stout was a visionary. Her and Ed opened a fantastic brewery that yeah. really motivated Ron and I when we were home brewers. Um, and in Western Pennsylvania, Tom Pastorius uh, left Chestnut Hill, Pennsylvania, to start up his brewery in Pittsburgh, um, making some very, very solid Germanic-style lagers. So I think that the early, you know, the earliest members of brewing in Pennsylvania really relied on what their strengths were understood what the audience um, expectations 
were, and they took it a notch higher in terms of quality. And uh, it's great to follow after leaders like that. Absolutely. Speaking of leaders, how do you feel about Abraham Lincoln? What does he mean to you? My gosh, uh, talk about adversity. That man had a tough assignment. Um, I read a really good book on the makeup of his cabinet. Um, he actually strategically sought to have people of different opinions. Um, a divided cabinet was his first challenge to sort of make sense of. And uh, it, he made it work um, to the country's benefit. Have you ever done one of the things that he does is where if you're, you know, you're frustrated or you're in a certain mood and you want to write a letter to somebody, you know, he would write it and then crumble it up, throw it away. That's awesome. Now I open a beer. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and then you, and then you recycle. <laughs> yeah. Now I do recall that. That's a, that's a great thing of his. Of his yes. So he got his emotions out, cleared his head didn't want to frustrate somebody that it, it was more, he realized, you know, almost in his own ego, this is my, these are my feelings. I don't need to put them on that person. This is how I'm reacting to this situation. Now, let me vent a little bit. Mm -hmm. Let me move on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great strategy. I mean, you know, emotion doesn't really have too much uh, practical use in a business situation. And that was probably his way of working it out and getting to a better solution. Yeah. I actually took a little bit of that information, you know, in your leadership, you know, Abraham Lincoln and that sort of thing. Um, you, you kind of dig into some of these things in your Ted talk. How'd you even get involved in a Ted talk? Uh, gosh, I don't know how that invitation came about. Um, but I jumped on it, um, because I thought that I did have something to tell. Uh, the topic of that specific Ted talk, it was Philadelphia specific and it was, um, here and now. And it was really to try and uh, bring out stories about where Philadelphia was at. And um, I saw it as a good platform to also talk about the history of Philadelphia in terms of its brewing uh, capabilities and its history, the home of lager beer production, right? Going back to 1840 with Peter Wagner. So um, yeah, I jumped on the opportunity. And you talk about there, was it, was it uh, Henry Weinhardt? His brewery? Henry Ortlieb's brewery. The Ortlieb Brewery. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, I was very fortunate to meet um, Joe Ortlieb and uh, have a really good relationship with him for about the last 15 years of his life. Um, he was amused by the fact of a small brewery like ours that was having success after he had success with a really large brewery. <laughs> and I think it also did him a lot of good to see this resurgence and revitalization of independent breweries in America again. And he was just an absolute wealth of uh, fantastic experience. So we would have, you know, lunches a couple times a year and uh, he would tell me about the old days and I would tell him about the current days and we both uh, walked away um, better people. What was one piece of wisdom that he imparted on you or, you know, kind of gave you that aha moment? Joe was always good at um, the first question was, how's your family? And mm -hmm. then you would explain to him, how everyone was doing. And he said, because they're the most important people and don't ever forget that. Love it. It's all starts at home. Yeah. In the Ted talk, you mentioned Philadelphia, you mentioned the standard tap. You focus, you know, you discuss their focus on great curated foods, and beverages, and you know, there, you kind of end with a quote of, you know, we want to bring beer from a fizzy yellow intoxicant to a terrific food pairing item. 
what does that mean? And how does that, you know, you have your tagline taste victory. Mm -hmm. How does that all kind of tie together? What is victory? What do you taste when you taste victory? Oh my gosh. Good question. Um, so the other reason we settled on the term victory for a name after having lost the name independence was because the two are certainly not interchangeable, but they were pointing at the same direction, meaning that Ron and I um, had trained in Germany. We had some great experience at the Baltimore Brewing Company making European quality beers. We saw our business opportunity as bringing European quality beers traditionally made fresher to people than they could ever get them through the distribution of exported products. Okay. So that was kind of our business model, right? Let's make it here. Let's make it authentic. Let's make it flavorful. And um, it's going to be better than the Heineken or anything else they've ever had like that. So with that in mind, um, the term victory made a lot of sense because we saw this as a potential triumph for American business over what was traditionally European um, standards and the domain of Europe, European quality beer. Yep. Um, we clearly were not the first at this, right? As you pointed out, there was Ken Grossman, Jim Cook, all these wonderful characters who mm -hmm. were shining the bright light. But um, we sort of took that um, characterization of being inspired by Europe in order to make these products fresh for an audience that we thought would appreciate that. Very cool. I had tuned into your tap room live. I think it was two weeks ago, which is pretty neat. I love that you guys are, again, we're all getting creative right now. Oh yeah. You mentioned a few times I follow your travels. I want to talk a little bit about Granada, Spain, and, and, you know, we we've gotten into mm -hmm. conversations with Garrett from Brooklyn and you mentioned in, on your, tap room live it you have different taste buds than most people what does that mean well um i wasn't saying that or wasn't suggesting that my taste buds are different in a better or in a positive or negative manner um, yep, absolutely they they differ in what mm -hmm. i perceive how i perceive things than your taste buds so um when you have that perspective, you realize that you can't necessarily tell somebody how something's going to taste. You have to demonstrate it to them. Uh, I was always very, very cognizant when I did beer dinners and sort of tutored samplings to try and tell the story of what the concept of the beer was and what it was constructed out of, what we were going for. I wasn't the guy that says, okay, now raise this to your nose and you're going to smell citrus aromas and then you're going to taste, you know, some fruity notes. Um, yeah, I did fall into that trap now and again, but what I didn't want to do is negate the person's experience of the beer. I wanted those flavors, those things that their tongue perceived and their head could sort of, you know, envision. I wanted that to be their experience. I didn't want it to be, oh, the guy told me it tasted like that. Yeah. yeah I had mentioned, you know, I had that conversation with um, Chris Walsh of River Horse when he was saying, he was like, we didn't want to talk about, we don't want to tell you, hey, this is too sweet or, or, or this is sweet or this is this, or as you mentioned, this smells like this because now all of a sudden subconsciously that's implanted in their brain and that's what they think, even though that may not even be what they tasted, but it's just, it's in there now. 
So it actually gets back to something we discussed earlier, Kyle, and that is an obstacle. You've created an obstacle for them to perceive the depth of characters that are in that beer. I mean, I've always marveled at, you know, wine writers. They say, oh, it's got aromas of deer hoof and tastes of (laughs) pencil lead. Like, who the heck knows what those things taste yeah, like? Who's out there eating those? You, you get paid for saying this stuff. Um, so I, I do like to leave it up to the consumer to interact yeah. with the product and, and figure out what those things are. Um, and I think that a lot of people in tasting environments like to watch the conductor of the event and marvel at you know their grasp of the language and the, the uh, adjectives they can pull out of their pocket to describe the beer. The fact of the matter is, I mean, everybody has, I believe, the ability to, has a great palate, has the ability to perceive things in it. Most people lack the confidence to just say the word that their head is telling them to say. And again, that's why a wine writer can get away with pencil lead and deer hoof and whatnot. I mean, if he's out there eating those things, I mean, more power to him. (laughs) This conversation where we're, you know, we're talking about flavors and aromas and bitterness and and that sort of thing. Um, This really ties into, again, the dear mighty things, but also Teddy Roosevelt, kind of the other part of that is the man in the arena, right? The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, you know, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again, because there's no effort without error and shortcoming. And, And it goes on and it ends up, you know, with the dear mighty things essentially, but you, to me, that's like, don't judge. Don't, don't say that these flavors are in there. Let people find out for themselves. Right. You know, be in the arena, try something. Yeah. And, you know, getting back to how we built an audience for our beers, our first tap room in Downingtown, you could conceive of as an arena. We put three beers on tap. Um, They were more expensive than what most people were accustomed to drinking at the time. They were made by guys that no one really knew. Um, But we staffed well and we were, you know, we took our time with everyone trying to get them to drink a beer that they were going to enjoy, uh, select the right one of three initially. And um, it worked. That was the arena. Our concept was going to live or die in that arena. Was there any pushback from shareholders or anything on spending? And you're saying, hey, listen, this is, we're going to spend a little extra here, but this is going to work. I promise it's going to be good. Any of that? Uh, Fortunately, no, in terms of product integrity and product quality. Um, Everybody recognized, everybody who was on board um, had some understanding of what craft beer was and could be. And therefore, they were all about quality. Um, I think it was the marketing spending that we just simply didn't budget for and, and came up short on. But again, um, rolling up your sleeve and creating an audience directly with consumers that you're um, dealing with face-to-face was a great way of getting it accomplished. I'm with you there. We talk about Spain and influence of food on, on your beer, on your palate, on pairing food with beer sort of thing. As I travel, I always keep my eyes, ears, and tongue open, right? Um, There is a lot of experiences out there in the world that uh, they can inspire something. 
And it may not be immediate. You may not come home and say, oh, my gosh, I'm going to do a Kolsch exactly like this one I drank. Um, you may taste something in a dish in Spain that says, you know what, this herbal characteristic is something I, I feel belongs in a beer. So um, the inspiration that is possible of, of through travel, I think, has always been valuable valuable to me and valued. I try and actually apply it. So, you know, time away from the job is time that should be enjoyed, but it can also be applied to the job. And also to that point of having that Kolsch in one country and another, maybe it's the same Kolsch, but it might taste different based on what you're eating. Yes, absolutely. That's the other thing. Um, you know, the interaction of different flavors in order to create a new experience. That's very liberating as a brewer because it inspires you to try to dare mighty things, so to speak, at the brew house. <laughs> yeah, is that your favorite part about just traveling is just kind of seeing what's out there, seeing a the different food, seeing the individual vegetables and fruits that you, know, you haven't seen before and how, they, how they're used, that sort of... My wife loves cooking shows, so we, you know, mm -hmm. she, they'll put out, you know, fruits and things and things together that I'm like, I didn't even know that existed or sure. I never thought those would go together. You know, what was something, was, put it this way, what was something like very interesting that you've had or, you know, some sort of food pairing or something that you're like, I don't know about this. And then you tried it and you loved it. Man. I'm, I, one of the things we just discovered in Spain on this latest trip was um, nougat. They, there's a lot of nougat made in Spain. And it varies wildly um, in terms of um, there's a range of diversity in what they create. We had this one that was suggested to us and it had, um, it was topped by sort of uh, sweet syrup, orange slices. Hmm. And the combination was just really, really incredible. Um, the oranges maintained their integrity. Um, they had a, a great you know, vibrancy to the orange itself, yet they also had the syrupy heaviness of it. And then the nougat was just, you know, just sort of powdery and nutty and really interesting combination. And they're hitting different parts of the taste buds at different times, right? So it, caught, it creates that effect. Yeah, yeah, good point. You were in the art world, graphic design and art, you go to an art school, put that together, your knowledge of art and in, in a different way of thinking almost, with how you create your beers and how you come up with them and why? Yeah. Um, you sort of just led to a very interesting thing because um, we haven't discussed it, but you know, Ron is, he's got a political science and economics degrees from UCLA. So you can see how this partnership really has a right brain and left brain um, aspect to it. And so therefore it, you know, um, He's very creative in his own ways, but in terms of the articulation, branding, and distribution of Victory, that was that was my part of the business plan. We we knew one another long enough to divide and conquer the duties, and so you know I am the one that sort of goes out there and looks beyond the horizon for the unique combinations, the unique opportunities, and then I bring it back to camp, and we all try and make it work out. Throw out the bad stuff, find the good stuff, and march forward with it. Love it. Well, I find that, uh, you know, I try and succeed by persistence. A river cuts through rock, not because of its power, but because of its persistence. 
got to keep pushing. I think those are some, some words that, you know, folks who are feeling down right now or at any point in time in their life, you got to keep pushing. That's the only way to make that change. Yeah, it's so absolutely true. And, um, you know, I, hopefully that, uh, everyone who's listening can utilize those words for positive results. Um, you know, you told a great story of how you challenged yourself. I told a story that you were able to pull out of me today about challenging, um, ourselves and, uh, it is all possible. It was story time with Bill and Kyle. <laughs> Good thing it wasn't with, you know, uh, with fuzzy bunny slippers and, you know, that would have been really bizarre. My camera's up high enough where you can't see those slippers. Oh, okay. Yep. I missed that part. Just kidding. Um, cool. Well, Bill, I appreciate it. Is there anything else? Hey, congrats on five years in Kenneth Square. Yeah, that's a big achievement, right? Um, that flew by. I really enjoy that community. Yeah, it did fly by. <laughs> moly. Um, we appreciate what you're doing with the crowlers right now. I mean, $3 crowlers is unbelievable. Um, I got so many, I almost had to bring a second vehicle. <laughs> but no, we, we love it. So, you know, and again, what you guys are doing for the community, uh, what you do for the guilds, all the jobs you provide, the tax dollars your business provides, and your leadership. I mean, can't thank you enough for that. Uh, your wife, your daughters, they love you. They respect you. I have my wife and my daughters. We have that bond. And I think that that's right. That's even, you know, some adversity living in the house with them. <laughs> it's almost like we, we asked for it because we wanted another challenge, you know? Wait a second. You're not saying nice things because you're going to hit me up for toilet paper. No, I have plenty. Okay, good. Good for you. Yeah. I mean, you know, in, in households where there's a lot of women, it's generally you're, you're ahead of the curve on the toilet paper supply. Yeah. I, I spent some time this weekend pulling hair out of drains and, uh, <laughs> I know it wasn't mine. <laughs> so, all right, Bill, I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you, Kyle. All right. Cheers. See it. Stay well. You too. Cheers. All right. That'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. I hope you find this valuable. Please follow on Spotify or subscribe on Apple. And while you're at Apple, please go ahead and give us a five-star rating. It helps us get noticed among the craft beverage community there. Thank you. Cheers and beer. Mighty things.